But it is the day that um, you come to church because your mama said to. Um, it is Mother's Day. And, and I tell you, I do this every, every, uh, every Mother's Day, and this is one of my favorite things, uh, favorite things to do. I call it Hug a Mother Sunday. Um, and so everybody is, uh, is, everybody has a natural mother. We don't all have a good relationship with her. Um, and so, some of them are no longer with us. Um, but we also have those adopted mothers in our lives um, and those spiritual mothers in our lives. Like my mom is Linda Ann. She goes by Ann. Um, but I love my mother. She uh, lives in Granbury. She's not here today, but I'm sure I will call her and say, thank you for bringing me into this world. Um, and for loving me and, and putting up with me and, and teaching me to love art and music and musicals and, and all that side of me is from my mother and museums and stuff like that. And thank you for shaping me in that way. And, and then I have some adopted mothers and like Vicki Fallon is this lady who comes to mind who, who I've known, she's known me since I was born and, and has, has been alongside me and, and, and disciplined me and, and loved me at the same time. And and then I have these spiritual mothers, and, and Donna Streve is one who comes to mind um, for me in my life. And some of you know Donna, she's a pastor, and um, she is, she's a, a, my birthday twin, um, but a whole lot more years ahead of me. Um, and you can tell her I said that, she's old. Um, but she, she is, uh, she's taught me so much in faith and prayed for me and, and helped me in my ministry. And, and so we all have those women that surround us in our lives. And, and every one of you who is, who is a woman is, is something to that. Uh, for someone else. You might be a natural mom, you might be an adoptive mom, you might be a spiritual mother. And so I'm gonna ask all of you mothers if you would please stand. All the mothers stand. Yeah, you can clap for a mother, it's all right. Keep standing, don't sit down, keep standing. We're gonna pray a blessing over you. Father, we thank you and praise you for these mothers, for these women who so encourage us and nurture us and shape us into who we are. God, we ask that they would forgive us for us not listening, um, but they would continue to be who they are. May your blessing be upon them this day and all the days of their life. And the church said, amen. Thank you, mothers. Have a seat. Yay for mothers. All right, one day a week, we gotta say, good job, mom, and then it's back to work tomorrow. Um, so, uh, so today we're, we're, we're in the middle of this series that we're gonna wrap up um, next week, The Bible for Grownups. But I wanna tell you what's coming this summer. Every summer we do a series based on a theme or a group of people. And what we've done over the past two, we've done heroes one year, we, last year we did villains. Uh, this year, female is the future. I see that on TV all the time. And so we're doing the ladies um, of the Bible. All the ladies say, yes. All right, y'all should, 9.30 was crazy excited. They're like, yeah! Um, not really, they didn't. They can barely hear me from time to time. Um, so uh, it was, it's, it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna focus on um, some extraordinary women of, don't tell them I said that, extraordinary women of faith um, all throughout. And we're gonna talk about each, you know, an individual person every week and, and how their story and what they did or what the, was said about them can shape our lives uh, today. So that's what's coming in a couple of weeks. But we have two more, ser two more parts of this, the Bible for grownups. And the Bible for grownups is a series that I borrowed greatly from another pastor, kind of a spiritual father to me, even though he doesn't know I exist. But that's all right. That doesn't matter. Um, he he uh, has written a lot and I, and I, I do, I read a lot of what he does. Um, it's a series that he did. And, and I love this series. And some of you are going to be totally bored by this. If you weren't here the first two weeks and this may not be your thing. I mean, Jenna was at the 9.30 service because she's teaching Sunday school today, and she goes, eh, because um, this, isn't, this isn't her thing. She goes, you kind of got me at the end, but for most part, it, I was bored. 
And I'm like, thank you, honey. Um, happy Mother's Day. You're not my mother, so I will do nothing for you today. Um, and, and so, uh, am I right? I'm not, I'm not wrong about that. Um, and, and so, some of you, this is a little too heady, um, if you will, historical. I nerd out about this stuff. I love this kind of stuff. Um, but the whole point of this, the Bible for grown-ups, is when we were younger, we were all given the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. All right, stage left is going to heaven. <laughs> Particularly Sabrina Adam and the rest of you. Get to work on that. Come on, that was an easy layup for you. So yeah, it was this, thing, it was this book that we were given. It was pretty, and, and, and someone who gave it to us just said, whatever they said, but here's your Bible, or do everything that is said in this, or whatever. And I showed you last week, I don't have it this week, but the Bible that Jenna and I received um, when we got married from someone, and it has our name emblazoned in gold on, on the front, and it's in, you know, the New King James, you know, whatever, like nobody reads that. Um, he that doth readeth this is confuseth. Still going to make fun of King James, Chasey. Um, and, and so you have um, this thing, and, and it's a wonderful deal. But here, here's the thing about this. If you, if you don't know the story of the Bible, then the stories of the Bible are not going to mean the same thing to you. Like you can know all the stories, but if, if you don't know how it came into existence, you're missing a large part of the story of the Bible. Because let me tell you something. We don't worship this book this book is not what we worship. We worship the God who created and the Son who redeemed and the Holy Spirit who sustains. We worship the God who is the reason for this, but we don't worship this. However, th yeah, you can get an amen from the balcony. All right, I, was, I cut you off, sorry. Um, but but this, is, this is something that is formational and foundational to who we are as the sons and daughters of God. And if we don't understand how the Bible came into being, we miss a whole lot of what's going on. And today, today we're gonna talk about a part of scripture about this much of it that sometimes puts people away. That sometimes when they say, my whole life is based on the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, and you read this section, you can get a little questions. Or maybe somebody, because your faith isn't as strong and you don't know the story of the Bible or really many stories in the Bible, they point out particular verses and you're like, well, I don't know about that. The question or the statement, how can you believe in a God that? Right, that statement's loaded. How can you believe in a God that? And a lot of those statements begin from this section, what we would call the Old Testament. Now what we've talked about over the past couple of weeks is what the Bible, Jesus didn't write the Bible, but the Bible wouldn't exist without Jesus. The Bible didn't begin with Genesis, but the Bible began when the tomb was empty. Right, when the tomb was empty and, and, and people came to see, Jesus lived an amazing life and he died. If that's where it stopped, we wouldn't have talked about it. But that's not where it stopped. And so people started talking about it and people started writing about it. And what Luke says is, man, many people were writing accounts of what happened. Many people who saw it, who were there, started writing down their thoughts. Peter sits down with this guy named Mark, and he's like, man, this is what I saw went down. Matthew was there, and he begins to transcribe it. John writes it later. Luke, this historian, this doctor, goes in, and he does this investigative journalism to say, and he speaks to all these eyewitnesses about what happened when Jesus conquered death. If it weren't for the resurrection, none of this would exist. 
But something magnificent happened when Jesus conquered death. So much so that the church started in the very town where the people were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days prior. But nobody was handed this. The church didn't begin with the Bible. It began with people telling the story of Jesus and what happened. And so when these people started spreading out and and then Paul has this encounter with Jesus and he begins to go and plant churches in Gentile areas, these people began to become enamored and in love with Jesus because of the stories that people were telling. But there wasn't a Bible for them to read. It was just, I saw this. This happened. I was there when. And so these people began to to fall in love with the story of Jesus. And so what they do naturally is like, well, Jesus was a Jew. What did Jesus read? And and they find these Hebrew texts, the the law and the prophets, and they begin to read and just immerse themselves in the law and the prophets. And, And last week we talked about in the beginning, they have their mind blown that all along the Jews said there is just one God and that one God created everything. And his crowning achievement was you and me, male and female, in his image. And there's this this beautiful dignity in that God created everyone in his image. And so they've immersed themselves even more and they're like, man, we've we've gotta consume even more of this. And so what they do is they turn more and more to the law and the prophets and they turn themselves into the study of the Hebrew text. But here's the deal, Um, the Jews didn't like this. Right, you have these new up and start ne'er-do-well like Christian community that's coming up and going, man, we love Jesus, Jesus is Messiah. Can we borrow your scrolls? Because we gotta really read this stuff. And they just consume all this stuff because the Christians didn't wanna be Jewish. They, they, weren't, they weren't studying the Jewish scripture to learn how to be a Jew. They were studying the Jewish scripture because Jesus loved it. There wasn't, they, they, were, looking, they were looking at it for historical purposes, not to buy into the religion. They weren't trying to to buy into the culture. And this angered the Jews. The Jews were like, then get away. You don't need our, this is our stuff, not yours. And they're like, yeah, but but there's something going on here. See, and a lot of times the the Jews would side with the Romans because of this, against, against the Christians. Because they were so enamored and immersed in their scripture, but they wanted nothing to do with them culturally, they were like, yeah, let's go persecute those guys. So what the Christians did is they, is they began to devour this, these works, but they left the, the, the cultural and religious side alone because that's not who they were. And the other thing they left alone was the interpretation of the Jews of their own scripture. They didn't wanna to listen to what the Jews had to say about the Hebrew scriptures. Why? Because they got it wrong. Because they were looking for the Messiah. And and so what the early church did was they looked at the Hebrew scripture through a Christological perspective. It's a really big word. I paid a lot of money at TCU to learn it. (laughs) What it means is they were looking for Jesus in the Hebraic scriptures. They were looking to see where Jesus was and what points to who Jesus as the Messiah is. And they found him everywhere even in places maybe he necessarily wasn't. But they found all of these different scriptures were saying this is who the Messiah will be, this is who the Messiah will be, this is is how you will know who the Messiah is when the Messiah comes. And they're looking at the Jews going, 
what's wrong with you? How do you not see this? And so what they do is they have this reverence for these Jewish scriptures because it points to who Jesus is as the Messiah. They don't say that they are Jews and they don't want to become Jews. But they take this Hebrew text, this law in scripture, and they make it their first kind of written bound form. There was nothing else, it was just this that they would study and they would would come into becoming a community with. But see, this caused problems, not just just inside um, the the Jewish faith, but but outside as well. So this is what the people of the Gentiles would find. Because what, what they did was, they were only looking for Jesus, they wanted to gloss over the rest of the story. Because if you get into the nitty gritty of this, there's some, there's some hurtful stuff in there. There, there. There's some painful stuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff that makes you say this, how could you believe in a God that? And so what the Christian church did was they're kind of like, they glossed over this. They missed the beautiful, fabulous, this epic history of the Hebrew people. Because what the Hebrew scripture does is it sets up the rest of the story. It sets up the beginning. It's it's the story of creation, but God moves quickly from creation into founding a nation. And he brings this, this guy who has no children, Abraham, and he says, through you, we're gonna create this amazing thing. And the nations will be blessed. And then, and then the people get taken into slavery in Egypt and they're there for generations, 400 years. And God moves again through Moses. He speaks through Moses who goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And God speaks in a language and in a way that only Pharaoh could understand. Violence and power, and he lets the people go. And the people, Israel, they go across the Red Sea, as you know, and they go into their time in the wilderness until Moses goes up the mountain and he comes down and he delivers the Sinai covenant. And in this covenant, God says, I will always be your God and you will always be my people. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you and I'm gonna make you multiply as long as you obey me, as long as you obey me, we're gonna be good. But if you don't, if if you don't, I'm gonna let you go. I'm gonna let you go into, if you, because what God was doing in this covenant, he was saying, you're different. I pulled you out of Egypt and I claim you as my people because you're different. You are not supposed to be like everybody else because from you will come the Messiah. And so you do not worship the way that they worship. You do not bow down to the gods they bow down. You do not live your life the way they live their life. So I will bless you if you obey me, but if you take on those other gods, if you take on those other cultures, if you take on their worship practices, I'm gonna let you do it. I'm gonna give you over to those people and I'm gonna give you a full dose of what it feels like to be separate from me. But when you repent, I will bring you back and you will know what it means to be connected with me because I will always be your God and you will always be my people. See, what God was setting up here, he was setting up this conditional covenant that says, as long as you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you don't, 
but he was setting up this unconditional covenant that says, you will always be my people, and from you, salvation will come. It is in this, these, the Sinai covenant, when Moses comes down, not with, not with the 10 commandments, or 15 if you're a Mel Brooks fan. Stage left is killing it today. You people get on board with stage left, all right? But these 613 commandments that, that Moses comes down with, these 613 laws and rules and regulations, and, and this is where we lose a lot of people. Because have you ever read through the 613? Have you ever started the, the, like the January 1, you're like, oh, this is the year I'm gonna read from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm gonna open up Genesis and I'm gonna start in Genesis 1. And you get into Genesis and you're like, this is amazing, they should make a movie out of this. They have multiple times, right? Like this great story, this epic stuff. Like you go to Abraham and Moses and Joseph and you like sing songs and stuff and Joseph and great theatrical productions. And, and then you get into the Exodus, right? This, this momentous, epic story. When Pharaoh lets the people go in the parting of the Red Sea and, and Aaron has to hold Moses' hands up so that he can, that every time his hands are up, they, they win and all that. Just great stuff. And then you get into, oh, it's like, whoa, it's rule after rule after rule. And then numbers, you're like, what? Deuteronomy, you're like, didn't we just read this in Leviticus? God, there's more rules and regulations. And then like Chronicles, I mean, that's the, one of the worst books ever. Just like, he begat, he begat, he begat, he begat, sleep. It's in these commandments, it's in, it's in this part where the people outside of our faith attack us. It's in this part where the people inside of our faith who don't know the real story and don't spend their time knowing the story of the Bible or the stories of the Bible get a little shaky and start to ask the questions, well, how could you? Because Richard Dawkins puts it this way in his book, The God Delusion. He says, Judaism originally is a tribal cult of a single fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh, and he goes on and on and on. He, he paints this picture of, of the Hebrew God that is violent and vindictive and jealous is really concerned with how we live our lives in the bedroom. How could you believe in a God like this? And the early church is like, well, let's push some of this stuff aside and let's just look for Jesus and all of this. But we're missing the movement of God that leaves, leads to Jesus in the first place. And people don't like to talk about this all the time because we don't have a great understanding of it. I mean, how many of you can name all 613 commandments right now? 10? A couple of hands are raising. You're like, I'm not, is he going to call on me? I so don't want to raise my hand. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just like, what? So Leviticus 18. Here's an example of, of where it goes that, that we don't want to talk about it. In Leviticus, Leviticus 18, I'm sure you all know this, right? There are the 19 rules and regulations about sexual prohibitions. Right? You all knew, had that on your, no? Um, so all, all these, here, here's the thing is, these 19 laws about sexual relations, all of these things that God prohibits were practiced in Egypt and Canaan, all 19. 
All 19 were common practices. All 19, and this is God going, you are not them. I have pulled you out from that land and brought you into a land of freedom. You're different. You are not to live the same way that they live. So we will not do the same things that they do. We will hold ourselves to a different standard. Incidentally, in every developing nation around the world today, and in most every underdeveloped, up-and-coming nation, 17 of the 19 are illegal or highly frowned upon. What God was doing is going out ahead of his time, going, hey, there are certain things that we as humans shouldn't do. So we need to block some things and we need to hold some things to a different level because you're my people and you should stand out from the world. But what is he talking about really? What's the theme around this? Because it, it may help you to know because your mind is probably wandering if you've, you started paying attention when I started talking about sexual relations, I get it. But what are we really talking about? There's a theme about this and he begins it with Leviticus 18.6. And this is the theme of all of these 19. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Seems reasonable, right? I mean, that didn't floor anybody, right? That you're like, what? I, I mean, anybody from Mississippi in here? Sorry, it was Arkansas or Mississippi and I chose Mississippi, I'm sorry. Right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's something that we're like, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. Totally down with that. Of course not. But that wasn't the norm. See, I mean, God is dropping this law into a time when it was normal to have sexual relations with your close relatives. It was common practice in Egypt to marry your sibling. Hey, sis, what are you doing next Friday? Let's get hitched. Right? It was common practice and God is like, we are not them. We are different from them. We are going to set ourselves out from who they are because you are my people and I am your God and from you salvation will come. So I hold you to a different standard. But a lot of times what we want to do is we want to take these things out of context. And we wanna look at them out of context, but you can't do that with history. We can't pull the Sinai covenant and bring it into 2019 and go, this just doesn't fit. Well, of course not. It's 3,500 years ago. God isn't speaking to us the same way he spoke to them. But there were these, these laws and these commandments and, and what the Sinai covenant did was, it, it was this moral and civil code that when understood in its context, was brilliant. And like the creation story, way ahead of its time. It may strike us as unsophisticated or barbaric, but it was superior in every way to every other civil and religious code and ethic that existed of the day. The protections afforded to the most vulnerable could not be compared to. In the Sinai covenant, women, servants, foreigners, and children all were protected at a stronger and deeper level than in any other religious or civil code. From the very beginning, God said, people matter because they are made in my image. From the very beginning. 
and we gloss over it. And so from this, they studied these things and, and God was the founder and Abraham and Moses and the Sinai covenant. And then, and then all the cool kids had kings. And so they're like, hey, God, give us a king. And he's like, you don't want a king? We're like, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. Okay, didn't go well for him. God gives them kings to rule over them. He's like, I'm your king. They're like, nah, we can't see you though. And so they have these kings and the kings brought taxes and, and multiple wives and, and, and armies and war. And, and then they wanted a temple. They're like, every other God has a temple and every other nation walks into their temple. And God's like, man, I don't need a temple. I don't want a temple. I'm a mobile God. You can't put God in a corner. Like we want a temple. And he's like, fine, here's the temple. And he gives very detailed instructions about it. And they build this temple, but God's like, but I don't live in there really but they want a place because they want to be like everybody else. And that's the whole thing. The whole thing we struggle with today is we compare ourselves to everyone else. And God's like, but you're not like everybody else. You're mine. And so you should look different. And after the temple, God would send these prophets because from time to time, a lot of the time, the kings would leave the, lead the people in the wrong path and they would start taking on these other gods and attributes of these gods and, and the prophets would have to come. And, and for the most part, the prophets were speaking to a particular point in time. Their message was a warning from God, get your stuff together or things will go wrong in this particular moment. But every now and then, the prophets would come and they would deliver a message for a time that was in the future. And this is what the early church picked up on, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says this, he was despised and rejected by mankind. This is written 600 years before Christ. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He died and was buried. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life again. He will come to life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their inequities. When the early church saw these words of Isaiah, they were like, exactly. That is exactly who we thought Jesus was. Do you not see this? There's an interesting story that um, Andy Stanley tells about one of his seminary professors. His seminary professor was a Jew, who believed in Jesus, was teaching um, people about Jesus and how to, how to learn from, um, from who, who you are in God's eyes and all kinds of stuff. But he grew up a Jew, um, not a good Jew. He didn't go to synagogue very often, didn't read the Torah very much, but he was a Jew. Um, and he had a friend who was a Christian who kept inviting him to church. And he's like, come to church, come to church. He's like, no, I'm a Jew, I don't do that. Um, and, and so his friend wrote down for him Isaiah 53. And he's like, hey, um, I just want you to read this. And so the guy took it and he read it and he's like, huh, wait, that's in the, that's in the Torah? He's like, uh-huh. That sounds a lot like that guy you keep telling me about. Yeah, Jesus. And so this really weirds this, this Jewish guy out. And he's like, man, I gotta call a synagogue. So he calls, sets up a meeting with the rabbi. And he goes into the rabbi and he's like, and he go, hands him the Isaiah 53. He's like, hey, read this. Rabbi reads it. He goes, who's that sound like? He goes, well, it sounds a little bit like Jesus. He's like, yeah, why don't we talk about this? And the rabbi says, tells him, well, because we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So we don't use Isaiah 53. Wait, what? Like the thing that, one of the greatest things that points to who Jesus is as, as Messiah, because you say you don't believe, right? Like, well, we're just gonna push that one under the rug. And this is a practice that is not that uncommon for Jewish homes and synagogues to kind of skirt over Isaiah 53. See, what the early church did is they immersed themselves in these scriptures to learn who Jesus truly was. But what they did is they skirted the rest of the story. They, they, they tried to sand and soften the rough edges of these old stories because they're like, well, that doesn't make God look very good. But God doesn't care about that because God's got a bigger plan in mind. Because God was doing something powerful. What Paul says in Galatians is, and, and, but when the time was finally set, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption into the family of God. When the time was right, God, what he started in Genesis, the story of creation, and then he founds this nation from whom redemption would come. What God did was God entered into the, the fray of the world and he, he operated under the power and, and the rules of the kingdoms of this world to usher in a kingdom not of this world. God entered into humanity going under the laws of what he created and said, this is how we're going to roll. And what we do a lot of times is we wanna put aside the scary part and lean in to the pretty. But it was because of how God operated at the very beginning that the rest came. And so what the early church did was the early church decided that these scriptures were so important that we're gonna take them and we're going to bind them and we're going to call them holy to us. This law and the prophets as they called it, they eventually started calling it the old covenant. It was the old covenant, the old covenant. Why old? Because a new one had come. But it was through the old covenant that the new was unleashed. Now we call it the Old Testament because one day we thought Latin was a great language and we called it instead of Old Covenant, Old Testamante. And we went to Old Testament. But the stories haven't changed. God hasn't changed. The same God who walked up the hill of Calvary and took the cross is the same God recorded very detailed in the Old Testament. It's the same story. And it's the story that gives us hope and redemption and freedom. If we don't know the backstory, we don't know why the new story is so important. If we don't know the stories of the old covenant, we miss the beauty and the power of how God brought the new covenant forward. See, the early church got this and they understood it and they took this old covenant around and they pointed to the places where Jesus was clearly marked. They still didn't have the New Testament. They still didn't have the Bible. All they had were some different recordings that were being shuffled around, some eyewitness accounts 
of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, of John. They had these stories of this guy, Paul, who went around planting churches, writing letters to them, sharing his thoughts and his beliefs. It wouldn't be for hundreds of years before it was all put together, but the foundation was set. Are you one who's tripped up by the old covenant? Are, are you somebody who, who ignores those scriptures and says, well, the Bible starts in Matthew? And maybe you dip in here and there, like during Christmas when we like to bring those Isaiah prophetic statements forward and we go, woo, Jesus is pretty, look at him here. And we wanna pass over the dark side as we see it, the ugliness as we see it, that vindictive, that jealous, that angry God because we're scared of what that may say about the new covenant. Let me tell you, you gotta let that go. That's old covenant mentality. And Jesus came to fulfill that old covenant and set with us a new one. A new one that offers us freedom from oppression, deliverance from slavery and life eternal, the very thing that the Old Testament story is about. Many of us are scared by that. Many of us are scared by those stories and, and have had our faiths shaken. And so I say to you, are you willing to come up here and get some prayer and maybe come talk to me about it? Are you willing to sit down and really hear the story for what the story is? To see the liberating, beautiful power of grace that begins in Genesis and finishes in Revelation. Because that's the story of the Bible. Next week, we're gonna wrap it up. When we get closer to what the early church had to stand on so that they would know that they are the sons and daughters of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, God, for the ways that you move in our life. God, we thank you so much for the stories recorded in the Old Covenant, for those stories of, of deliverance and redemption, for those stories of trust and obedience, and for even those stories of walking away and what happened when we did. Because throughout that narrative, throughout that story, is the threat of Christ who through whom all things were created and in whom all things are held together. It is through his death, through his resurrection, through his very blood that we have life forevermore. He is never absent from the pages of scripture. And so we thank you for his presence. We thank you for his power. We thank you for the life that he has given us and all that you have given us as well. As we come to this time of offering, we do so with thankful hearts, not just for what you have given us, but what you have done for us in the past and what you will do for us in the future. We pray that you would receive this offering in your mercy and by your strength, would you magnify it, that through it others may hear that revelating story, that story that brings them freedom, that Jesus loves them. This I know for the sons and daughters told me so. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in worship?